0: You're listening to The Profession's Greatest Physical Therapist, Their Past, Our Future Podcast. We're your hosts, Ethan Mitchell and Joey
1: Stewart, first year physical therapy students at Angelo State University.
0: This is the podcast that is made to inspire pre-PTs, SPTs, and current physical therapists to become the greatest versions of themselves, physically, mentally, academically, financially, and spiritually. Let's get into it.
1: Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, today, we have a very special guest. We got Dr. Stephanie Allen. Uh, how are you doing? Very
2: good. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Of course, of course. We're happy to have you. Um, so just to get started, just tell us about your PT journey. You know, I know you've um, done a couple different things in the realm, so I'm just curious to see what that was like. You know yeah.
2: So do you guys usually have a place that people start? or Are you talking about just like from school?
1: Um, I mean it could be PT school itself, it could be what led you into PT school, um, or what led you to pursue PT as a profession, whichever you prefer.
2: Okay. Yeah, so I actually um I had already applied to a couple of schools for, for PT school, um, but I was more than likely at that time planning to go as pre-med mm. um when I was like a junior or senior in high school. And then I sadly tore my ACL my senior year playing basketball Um, and I went to a local PT place and I thought to myself at that time too, I was starting to get to the point where I was like, I don't know if I really want to go to school for that long (laughs) as far as med school. Um, And and I realized also that I saw it as a profession that I could actually spend a little bit more time with people. Um so that's where I kind of was like won over um which is not super uncommon i think a lot of people who are in our profession either were injured or someone close to them was injured and so they you know had a first or close to first hand experience with the rehab process itself um so then i went to ithaca college um in upstate new york their 6 year dpt program um enjoyed that i Told myself I wasn't going to go back to school at all. And then I lied and did a residency and stayed in Ithaca and did mm-hmm. an ortho residency there um, at Cayuga Medical Center. They had a, I was located at one of their satellite offices at Island Health and Fitness. Um, so we were attached to a gym, which was amazing. And so I was able to work with a couple of other clinicians who were my mentors during that year that also had a decent um, strength and conditioning background. So that sort of piqued my interest as well. Um, and then I was planning to stay there and my, you know, I actually presented on this to some of the, uh, PT students at Ithaca a few years later, but, you know, I had that five-year plan. Like I wanted to stay there and then I wanted to get like a couple of other certifications other than OCS and, um, you know, was, was planning to just kind of like stay and work up in Cayuga Medical Center. Cause I liked it so much. Um, and they didn't have a they didn't have a full time board certified PT salary in their budget for that year when I was done, um, so it forced me to think. You know, already the five year plan was off, which I know we could probably talk a little bit about too. But um, so I decided to do travel PT for a couple years, um, and I really loved it at first. I was in New York, California, New Mexico, and Colorado at one point or another and um i did really i liked it i got to see a lot of places um but along that time you know that almost 2 year span i started to really become interested in acl rehab and was just kind of disheartened if you will with how that injury seemed to be cared for the people with that injury seemed to be cared for and it didn't seem to matter you know, across state lines, because I was seeing a lot of different places. Um, we just weren't good at it. And I was like, I don't understand how we can be not so great as a whole. So I wanted to be somewhere where I could really start to hone those skills for that type of injury and population. Um, and so that's how I ended up at, at Boston PT and Wellness, where I am now. I knew Zach um, from school. We were not dating at the time. Um, and I just wanted a place that I knew that I, that would foster my growth and also that wasn't just a, you know, high volume type outpatient clinic.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. And I definitely want to do circle back on your travel PT journeys a little bit. And I'm just curious how that shaped you as a person or even a clinician too.
2: Yeah, that is a great question. So As a person, I am by default, probably more on the introverted side and um, doing travel PT as a, let's see, I think I was 24 at the time, Um, single female, like driving cross country, looking back at it, I'm still like surprised my parents weren't like, what are you, what are you thinking? (laughs) Um, But I honestly, I didn't anticipate it, but it ended up being a good thing in a way for me because like, unless I wanted to just stay in my Airbnb where I was staying, like you, it forces you to go out and meet people. Yeah. Um, so I would go to a bar or cider place by myself. or I would go to dinner and like sit there by myself and like talk to people. And, um, you know, and sometimes not, sometimes I would go like, you know, other than seeing people in the clinic, sometimes I would go like a lot of the weekend without speaking to anyone unless it was on the phone. Um, and I think both were good. You know what I mean? Like, um, definitely a lot of time with myself, but also with having to kind of get out of my own comfort zone a little bit. I know a lot of people will do travel PT with like a friend or a significant other. Looking back, I probably would suggest that, (laughs) but at the same time, I think for me, it was at that time, a good thing for, um, for some of those reasons, kind of getting me out of my shell a little bit. Um, and then more professionally, I would say that I was definitely in some situations um, where it wasn't the ideal location that I wanted to be, but kind of with travel PT, you do have a little bit of that that you have to compromise occasionally. Um, At the time, I didn't know that you can use more than one travel company and you can um, quote unquote shop around a little bit to see, you know, which ones are contracted with places that you might have a better time with that might fit, you know, either populations or the area that you like to work in. Um, and I didn't know that. So I just used one company and it was just like, yeah, wherever you can keep me an outpatient. Um, and kind of rolled with it. So again, looking back, it was like probably not the smartest. Um, and it was probably the most uh, spontaneous thing that I've ever done in my life. But um I think on the professional side, a couple of things. One is that you have to you have to be super adaptable as a travel PT because you have to hop into a place where there's other permanent employees that like you know, they have a way of doing things. They have a way of running, you know, their offices, their, um, their social culture is a certain way already. Um, their higher ups interact with them or don't interact with them a certain way. They have scheduling done a certain way. So, you know, every three months you are switching that and it, it can be a little overwhelming, but it's also one of those things like, okay, you could worry about that or complain about that, or you could literally just kind of like settle in and, you know, also do your thing while you're there and make the most of like meeting your other coworkers and working with a new population of people. Um, and I think that was, you know, being able to step into and, and learn really quickly different systems is actually super helpful because then you're not really phased by, you know, maybe, you know, a higher volume place for a little while if you work there or if somebody messes up their schedule and you end up seeing, you know, two people at once or something like that. It just, um, it it was helpful for me, I think for just patient management Mm. and managing like more than one thing at
1: once. For sure. And, um, one thing that kind of stands out to me too, is just with all that hopping around, you know, and I know one thing you said um is you wanted to be somewhere that really fostered growth um which i mean that i imagine is incredibly tough when you're a travel pt and you're not really at one place for as long as you would like to be um definitely not ideal in that regard so how do you think your growth was fostered in that time though or how do you feel like you grew i should ask
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question too. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but things like, um, you know, when I was in PT school and just towards the end of like my grad school years was when like Instagram and YouTube and other things where you could get more information, like about nerdy stuff, like about PT things, about science, whatever. Um, that wasn't really a thing when I was in school. So while I was doing travel PT, which again was two years after I graduated, because I did the residency after I graduated too. So this was a time where like, that was really, it was this like, quote unquote, new wave of information absorption. And I do think that that lasts probably six months or so when I was starting to become less and less happy with travel PT and and planning to be somewhere permanent that you know, things like the Clinical Athlete Forum and other, you know, following clinicians that now we probably look at as, you know, setting the way for us, the people that started to ask more questions like Jared Hall and Derek Miles and, um, you know, and then also talking to some of my friends and, and colleagues and classmates that I had stayed in touch with, including Zach, and just kind of like, you know, asking some of those questions that maybe we didn't feel comfortable asking our CIs or our supervisors on travel assignments and that's the kind of stuff that I feel like not only kept me sane but also fostered my growth enough to you know in the way that it made me feel okay to ask questions and not just like well this is the way that I'm taught this is the way that they're doing it so this must be the way that it has to be because clearly inside I was like there has to be another way
0: (laughs) I get that that feeling like you don't want to ask questions and kind of step on toes because it's a different way of thinking. And, and I think some of your questions, like you mentioned earlier are around ACL patients. And you mentioned that you're frustrated with how the outcomes are for many of these patients. And I kind of want to dive in with you about um, how we are treating ACL patients. You know, what we're doing as physical therapists as a whole, we're not serving them to the best of our ability. And it seems that we're not reducing the risk in many different ways for, you know, uh, retail rates and everything like that. And it seems over the years that we've focused heavily on, um, you know, motor control aspects of it, um, uh, strengthening, etc other interventions which you know aren't you know bad things but it doesn't seem like they're you know getting the getting the trick done if that makes sense where do you think we as physical therapists of the future need to start addressing you know different aspects that are um high efficacy if that makes sense
2: yeah i feel like if we solve that question then you know hopefully we would get a lot of money but um <laughs> yeah. i think i think it's a um it's a deep it's like a multi-layered thing if you will mm-hmm. for sure um and i think that the the two probably simplest things that younger clinicians or up and coming clinicians can do if this is an area that they are thinking about or they're passionate about going into um is figure out you know aside from the you know this is Once you get past being ideally in an environment that will, you know, foster your growth per se, like like I was looking for, Um, because that's not always necessarily going to be the first place you are. It's, you know, first one or two places you work are probably not the last. And it might take take a little bit um, to find your area that you want to be in. Um, And I would say that once you get that sort of settled, you know, make sure that you have two things. One, some objective form of measuring strength. Because in an outpatient orthopedic clinic in our country where, you know, and you're talking about like generally, um, you know, in-network insurance, the most limited but important commodities that we have and don't have are time and money, especially with insurance, because insurance reimbursement rates are low. So there's going to be few places right now that you're going to go where, you know, if they're in network that you're probably not going to be expected to see, you know, less than 10 to 12 people a day. And that might be slow. So time, time is definitely one thing and, and space per clinic. So if you're looking for, um, you know, a place to ideally treat that population, definitely something that you can objectively test because you might not have the space to test things like sprinting and hop testing and all that. Um, and like you said, we're not even really doing, you know, the numbers show that we're not even really doing the bare minimum as far as strength goes. So if you can have that, learn that and be able to, again, use strength and conditioning principles to get your people to where they need to be to pass those, that's great. You're doing great. You're doing more than probably a bunch of other, you know, a lot of clinics like yours are are doing. Um, the second piece, I'll be fully honest. I think that what's changed for me more recently is like i would think that every place needs a bunch of space and they need, um, you know, nine to 12 months to work with these kids. And the reality is that oftentimes you're not. And I, and I say kids, cause that's mostly my population, but it's all ages. It does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of places aren't, you're not going to have that and that's okay. But I think for me, one of the biggest things that have been helpful is like actually, um, developing relationships with strength and conditioning coaches in the area that once they get to a certain point and they're ready to like train to train, they're not necessarily, you know, they're going to have some specific considerations for their knee and continued focus on hamstring and quad strength for sure. Um, but if you have a strength coach that you trust in the area, being able to collaborate with them and send those kids there, kids, sorry, people (laughs) there when, when they're ready to kind of like, you know, like I said, be that return to performance phase versus return just to like modified participation in sport, um, or daily activities kind of thing, depending on when insurance gets cut off, then I think actually that would be, you know, although it requires some humility on the PT's point of view, um, or from their side, I honestly think that if we could set that up, then at least within the insurance model, we would be doing, I'd be curious to see what re-injury rates are and what the, um, the strength statistics are.
0: Yeah. I like that. And it definitely does take a little bit extra effort on the PT's part to, mm-hmm. you know, form those relationships and um, like you mentioned, have the ego to, or I guess lack of ego to, you know, let someone else, you know, do a good job with their patient too. So, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Joe. I also wanted to uh, just kind of clarify so an objective strength measure, something like a handheld dynamometer like that. Um, and that's pretty much a good one. Would you say, Steph, or is there anything else that you like to use?
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously the, um, the gold standard isokinetic. But if you don't have a place that you can send them to locally, like I don't have that right now. Um, or, you know, if you don't have an extra like 30 grand or they might have be more than that, I'm not even sure, but. You know, if you don't have access to that, a handheld is great. And there's ways that you can set up a handheld other than literally holding it in your hand, where it makes it a little bit, um, a little bit more accurate, like using belts and things like that. But even a, even a handheld hand or like an inline, which would be like more of a pull or a tension dynamometer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some that, like you know, there's more expensive crane scales that are like upwards of eight hundred to a thousand dollars. But then there's also like we use the tin deck, which is a force gauge that's 140 bucks, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you set that up with chain, a chain on a table. We bought a chain off of Amazon for uh, 20 bucks and then like two small carabiners and an ankle strap. And if you standardize like joint angle and you belt people's hips down, we use a mobilization belt for people's hips, um, you know, to belt them to the table. So it really, for not too much money and not too much time, um, at least for even just doing quads, you can get, some max effort isometric strength testing, um, you know, peak output measures in, you know, again, if you have somebody for a 30 minute session, you could get that in 10 minutes.
0: Yeah, that's true. And so you like to get the knee extensors and, you know, the hamstrings, the knee flexors. Is there any other group that you find that has just valuable data to measure? You like the hip external rotators or abductors? Do you spend the time on those?
2: Um, for particular people, I will, like if they've, you know, if they're demonstrating a lot of hip weakness or, or issues with hip stability elsewhere, I will. Um, I will be honest that again, um, time being a, a rich commodity in the clinic, um, I will obviously prioritize hamstrings and quads. Um, Mm -hmm. but what I also, we're lucky enough also to have, um, a K box and a K pulley. Mm. So what we've also started to do a little bit more because there's some research on, um, using an isometric mid thigh pole oh, as yeah. part of a reference value for, um, strength for return to sport after ACL injury. Um, we'll be honest though. I'm just, we're just beginning to dabble in that. And then also starting to play around with the K pulley setting that up as, um, you know, another ankle strap, like seated knee extension and looking at power output that way. Cause yeah. the K pulley Mm -hmm. has the app that will give power
0: output Um, That power outputs super important yeah
2: so then it's something a little bit more dynamic aside from isometric although isometric is also you know pretty close second to isokinetic Um, so if there's because again at the end of the day like you're giving them five full seconds to kick as hard as they can so if they're not generating you know at least 90% of the other side then the numbers aren't gonna lie
0: yeah and I like that you're using the you're starting to use the mid thigh isometric pool. I was, I think I was listening to Eric Meta on a podcast and he talked about like how he would have patients, you know, maybe low back or something. And they would be like, like, Oh no, I'm weak. And then like he'd get them on the mid thigh pool and they, they'd like lift 115 pounds. And he's like, are you sure you're weak? I mean, you just lifted 115 pounds. And so they feel a lot more comfortable lifting a little bit heavier. So that's a cool tool
2: think. Yeah, it can be it can be powerful for sure. I, I had a woman a couple of weeks ago who came back to me cuz she has kind of um non-specific recurrent low back pain, like a lot of like a lot of people do. Um and she's pretty active and sort of like understands that movement is good and everything, but was definitely a little hesitant to do things. So after the first session back, I said, "Hey, why don't we try this test? It'll give us an actual number of like what your body feels comfortable lifting and with those particular people I'll probably do a little bit of a higher, like actually closer to, to fully mid thigh, not below the knee. Cause there's some that will, will call for it below the knee. Um, and she pulled like over 200 pounds. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, again, she's regularly active and strength drains, but again, when you're in that amount of pain, it can inhibit strength.
0: Yeah. So that was that. cool.
1: So we kind of talked about the, uh, numbers or the um objective objective right i always get objective and subjective confused <laughs> they need to pick words that don't sound somewhat like uh, side of things but um i definitely want to talk about or we want to talk about the mental side of the acl as well um something we covered in class today and something i've definitely personally experienced uh tearing mine twice um there's definitely a mental block there um fear of moving certain ways, uh, a fear that you won't be the same athlete you were before. Um, Just could you tell us a little more about how you manage that and what you see with that things of that sort?
2: Ah, these questions, you guys, these are so good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think there isn't, there isn't one way. I think the biggest thing that from that side is to assume that you know unless someone flat out tells you that they don't have any worries at all which even then i'd be skeptical assume that everyone with this injury who's trying to get back to something active and can't do what they normally do five to six days a week is gonna have some mental issue with this it mm-hmm. is like taking away part of people um even if it doesn't involve running you know like a power who tears their acl it happens or you know someone who just occasionally skis with their kids and you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it can happen to anyone really, obviously it happens at higher rates in certain populations. But, um, I think for me, the first thing is the clinician is like, just assume that everybody's struggling because at some Mm -hmm. level and on some spectrum they are, and we only see them. I mean, I only see people twice a week. I'm only in clinic twice a week, but at most you're going to see a post-op person three days a week, but for how long, if they're coming through insurance, not that long. So you're seeing them maybe 40 to 60 minutes. If you're lucky three times a week, there's so much other time that they have outside of the week. And a lot of times when you're not doing your sport or you're not doing other stuff, that's too much time with yourself and your thoughts. So yeah, You know, I'll preface all of it by saying like, it's not easy, but I think that first and foremost, you know, from a clinician or future clinician view or angle is, you know, when you're, you're, if you get someone after this injury, or maybe they're even pre-op, if you're lucky enough, that type of talk, meaning like, you know, what's really frustrating, what's, you know, Are you worried about anything in particular? Have you had any other serious injuries before? Like that kind of stuff should happen as soon as you, like in the first one or two conversations that you have. And it should be expected that it is okay to bring up said fears and said worries because otherwise they stay up here and they don't do good things for your progress, physical progress too. Um, So I think a good gateway to that for people is I give everybody the AS, ACL RSI. Um, it's only 12 questions <laughs> it's, and they choose on a Likert scale from, from zero to a hundred. Um, and so it doesn't take them very long. And if that's your initial eval, you can take a look at which ones they scored low on because lower is um, lower confidence, more fear, you know, the negative side of the, the spectrum. I can get a really good idea from how they answer, particularly the questions that start with How frustrated are you by, how confident are you? Um, And there was another, there's another one that talks about how much they're, they feel like it's an issue or it burdens them to have to think about their injury and their knee. And like, those are things that they're on the sheet. I don't have to necessarily ask them, but then, since they answered them already, I can look at that and say, Hey, you know, you said, this is really frustrating. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what, you know, what's Mm -hmm. super frustrating. And it's not like you're just out of the blue asking them like, Hey, tell me all your fears (laughs) about this injury. Um, so I feel like the, the questionnaires, the outcomes can be a really good gateway for people. If you're initially not super comfortable bringing that up, especially if you think about, you know, I work a lot with adolescents unfortunately you know high school athletes middle school athletes with with this injury and I don't know how many young adolescent males and females that you guys have worked with but a lot of times they don't say too much yeah (laughs) they don't have a lot to say they don't want to say too much they just want to be on their phone um so that's a that's a good initial starting point um and then you know it's more of a you just have to kind of keep the conversation going through the rehab because there's going to be points where you, you'll be able to see in their face that they're frustrated with either they can't do a task that you ask them to do or an exercise or, you know, their team's doing this thing and they can't go. and But if you're talking to them, you'll know all that and you'll be able to talk through it with them.
1: For sure. Um, you know, it's good that you kind of, you know, bring up that um, ACLRSI. that's what you call it, Right. Yeah, I mean, just giving them something to kind of like look at, engage themselves with, and of course yourself as well. Um, And, you know, just kind of thinking more about the fear thing too. I mean, kind of how it works. I mean, I thought about it from two standpoints of, you know, okay, they have this fear and next thing you know, they just don't, for lack of a better term, they don't go as hard. Or they have this fear but they deal with it in an unhealthy way to the point where they end up re-injuring themselves. Like they disregard it rather than kind of use it as like a motivation or things of that sort. Um, so kind of on that note, what are things that you do um, in clinic with your clients um, to kind of help mitigate that fear?
2: I feel like that that's probably gonna be slightly different for everyone. But I think that if I were to kind of like bucket them into categories of like things that I've over the years ended up doing with people, cause again, like I've learned by trial and error on these things. Cause it's not, um, you know, you can go off of as much psychological research as, as you want. And there's some, some good ones out there. Um, but as you guys know, too, sometimes the human in front of you is just like, a little bit of a unicorn. (laughs) So, um, I think that first and foremost, if I were to say like, without straight up talking to people about it, there's certain things that once we get towards the middle to later stages of rehab, I'll up the challenge of things. So, and particularly if I have a, if I have tabs on what I know might bother them, typically for people, it's the, it's the act that they tore it in. So if it was a non-contact and they were cutting, when I start to implement cutting, I know that there's going to be a little bit of, whether they tell me or not, there's going to be a little bit of wariness there. There's going to be a little bit of hesitation. They're likely, you know, like you said, Joey, they're probably not going to be going, you know, a hundred percent. Not that we would do that at first anyway, but that might be, it might take them longer to get to that like full throttle thing for, for stuff like change your direction. Or I had a volleyball player one time who did something funky and on her, you know, it was on a, it was on a jumpin' land and she like came down on someone's ankle and, and did it. So jumping in any capacity was a really big hurdle for her mentally. Um, so I think that first and foremost, just having a plan and sort of a calculated way to reintroduce things that at least from a physical standpoint, you know, are going to be maybe a little anxiety provoking or, um, you know, reproducing scene of the crime type thing. I think that happens, that happens a lot as far as straight up fear. Um I think on the other the other side, um being an active part of their transition back to sport. So a lot of times PT in clinic is not going to be covered unless they're paying self-pay for like all the way through when they're going back to performance. So to clarify, like you can start participating in like in a restricted way with limit caps and percentage effort and, you know, non-contact type of participation, you know, as early as I would think seven or eight months um, if everything is going well, but you're not not fully to unrestricted participation and fully to, you know, playing at your hundred percent performance. That's what comes later. So you, you know, if if you're the trusted guide for most of rehab, I don't think that it should be okay. You're done with formal PT. Um, it's up to you and your coach now, because I think that happens a lot. I think that again, you know, Ethan, you said how it takes a little extra effort on the PT's side of things, but if it's a population you love working with, you're going to do it. And by that, I mean, you know, okay, come up with a plan with them and the coach. For these first two weeks, it's this many minutes, no contact, 80% sprinting, and, you know, whatever else you come up with as part of it. Be a part of that step each way. And when you think about it, it's basically like going from hand holding to, you know, walking across the street to an occasional call and check in, like, you know, there's, there's a transition there. And then ideally you're bringing in whoever else is going to kind of be the guide or the day-to-day person, i.e. the coach or the trainer at school or whatever. Um, if we're talking about a school situation, then you're integrating them during that transition process. And ideally fear is minimized in that kind of like transition way. Um, I know that gets a little bit more gray and complicated when you're talking about somebody who isn't going back to like a competitive sport um, and who just wants to like ski with their kids and do other things that might, that might require, you know, again, it'll be a plan between you two, but it might also require occasional check-ins that are outside of clinic. Um, And I think that's potentially where maybe some people will overextend themselves. So maybe, this population, if you love it, maybe, you know, not a place where it would be a hundred percent your caseload, because you're probably doing a little bit, (laughs) a little bit more, um, outside of the, outside of the clinic than with other, other people, maybe.
0: Yeah, that was great Steph. Mm -hmm. Thanks for breaking that down for us. I, I kind of see a similarity between exercise and kind of your relationship. It's kind of like graded exposure to, you know, being more on their own. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Joey, did you have another question? Um, I, w- I was going to close it off because uh, we want to be respectful of uh, Seth's time. Yeah. Um, if you have time for one more question, I do have one. Um, yeah,
2: go for it.
1: Gotcha. Um, and it's because I just <clears throat> kind of on the social media note of things, you know, I see a lot of things that kind of, like, get a lot of glory and whatnot. Um, but what do you think is one underrated aspect of ACL rehabilitation?
2: On the exercise side,
1: um, exercise any side really. Um,
2: I would say that I think more recently, in the last year or two, that you know I've definitely been guilty of trying to do, or how should I put it, create like the perfect program, right? And it's um, well, a it doesn't exist, and b I actually think that the initial stages, like those first two to three months should actually look pretty simple. You can add in things like, you know, sport specific. You know, right now I have somebody doing a single leg stance, like basketball dribble, because that's their sport. So they're not doing anything that's that's dangerous per se, but it's also not just coming in and doing like all knee extensions and hamstring curls and like, you know, things that would essentially almost look like bodybuilding, but for your legs. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I think about it, I think that those those early weeks, you know, to the first month and a half or two months. I always tell people like, don't get ahead of yourself. We are trying to get swelling down. We're getting your full range of motion. We're waking the quad up. And I actually want you to walk normally. People skip that (laughs) people want to get rid of the crutches so badly and they start walking funky and then that sticks around. So I think in general, keeping it super simple and then having those initial strength phases look pretty, you know, once it's safe to do, it's a whole nother discussion, but once it's quote unquote safe or, or less risky to do knee extensions, you know, doing those early and often and doing things that are going to make sure that the quads can't cheat, they have to work because after this injury, your body is going to do whatever it can to not use your quad. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, I think for, for lack of better terms, you know, keep it simple.
1: So, yeah. The perfect acron, kiss.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. It applies to many things, I think.
0: Keep, Keep it simple, silly. silly. Yeah. <laughs> jinx you only coke. <laughs> 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 all right, Seth. Uh, we we're just gonna close down with one of our final questions that we, you know, ask all of our guests. What's your definition of a great physical therapist?
1: Oh, geez. that's usually people's first response
0: yeah
2: save the tough one for last um to be entirely honest i think that and this probably goes for any type of clinician um or coach for that matter because i think that there's a lot of crossover between what we do in both of those realms but Mm -hmm. i think humility is huge because Mm -hmm. i think that it's one thing to be it's one thing to be like a quote-unquote lifelong learner which i feel like we all are but it's another to be okay with once you learn new things, saying I was wrong. Yeah. And I think that the best clinicians are like the ones that I, I think about what I did a year ago, and I was like, oh, you know, like oh, that's not like n- not terrible, but just those things where like you should look back and be like, wow, I'm I'm definitely treating and, and working differently than I was, you know, a year, three years ago, um, and also if someone asks you something and you answer one way and then, you know, a year later you realize that maybe that's not so true, like being cool with just being like, yeah, I was, I was wrong there. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's gonna, that aside, you know, alongside of being a lifelong learner is going to actually make you better as you learn.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah. I think we all pride ourselves on being lifelong learners, but it's kind of hard to, Admit to and like acknowledge the other side of things. It's like, don't, I was wrong. Cause no one wants to admit they're wrong.
2: Yeah, it doesn't feel good. It's not like a, <laughs> you don't strive for that. And then you learn certain things along the way, especially, you know, early on in your career and you're like, oh, I figured it out. Like I got it, you know? Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. But there's a way, I feel like there's a way you have to figure it out. And I feel like the most common way, and in my opinion, the best way is to just screw up, you know? Yep. yeah. I mean, not like, in, not intend to screw up, but like, you know,
2: no. So, and it's not, it's not in a way that will obviously, you know, one of our, our clinicians oaths are like, do no harm. Like that's the, mm-hmm. you're not harming people. Um, I guess one could argue if like there's a better way to treat than you are, but at the same time, it's like, by the time you are 40 years old, the people that you're working with should be better off for working with you then than, than when you were 30. doesn't mean that they were, that they were harmed <laughs> just yeah. you know, yeah.
0: what it is. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Cool deal. And Steph, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's a good place to find you or reach out to you?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm probably most active on and, and comfortable with Instagram and that's just stephallen.dpt. Um, if people have questions too, I'm, I'm an open book, so I don't know if you guys can share it too, but my email is just steph at the level up Um, I'm all ears. I'll nerd out all the time.
0: Cool. Yeah, great ACL content from Steph. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Honored to have Steph Allen on the show. She is an expert in ACLs. And go ahead and go follow her on Instagram. As well, if you've been enjoying the show, that'd mean a lot to us if you left a five star review or just a comment on Apple or Spotify podcasts. And that's all we got for you today. Have a great one. Peace.